This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg One fifteen. On the verse, and the wise shall shine like the radiance of the firmament. Ra'ai Memna on Parsha Naso comments, with this work of yours, i.e. of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, which is the book of the Zohar, literally the book of radiance, from the radiance of Ima Ela'a, which is Teshuva. Ima Ela'a, literally the supernal mother, is another name for the Sephira of Bina in the world of Atsilu. This Sephira relates to Teshuva Ela'a, the higher level of repentance, as explained at the end of chapter 8 of the Geret HaTeshuva, quoting the Zohar and Tikkunim. With those who study this work, no trial is needed. Zohar previously states that at the time of the final redemption, the Jewish people will be put to the test. Those who belong to the good side of the universe will withstand it, while those who belong to the side of evil will not. As it is written, many will be refined and bleached and chastened, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. The Zohar then states as above that those who study the tree of life, the Zohar, which is from the side of Bina, literally understanding, alluding to the perception of the mystical essence of the Torah, will not be put to the test. Everyone else needs to be put to the test. Anyone who's not studying the Zohar, not studying, needs to be put to the test. And there will be a time of clarity, a clarification. Everyone will show their true colors. Those who withstand the test will be refined and bleached and chastened. And the wicked will uh, just show their true colors, will act wickedly. There will be a very clear separation between those who are good and uh, those who are the opposite. What's the test? Look around you. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about our times. Talking about our day and age. Before Mashiach will come, it actually, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's once said, we know the famous test, Elijah the prophet gathered all the Jewish people in front of Mount Carmel in Haifa. And he said, whoever is to God, to me, and whoever is to the Baal, should choose the Baal, the idol worships, because the king and the entire Jewish people were steeped in idolatry. And he made the test of the two fires they offered their offering to their God, their idols, and nothing happened, despite all the trickery that they tried behind the scenes to get the flames going. And Elijah poured water and drenched his sacrifice in water, and miraculously, his sacrifice was offered. This was during Mincha time. And that's when the Jewish people said, Hashem hu alikim, God is God, Hashem hu alikim, and that's what we say seven times on your, at the end of Yom Kippur. So it says, I think the Ruzhina Rabbi said, if I'm not mistaken, that the Mashiach will come, right before Mashiach will come, once again there will be the same test. 
And this time, the prophets of the Baal will win. The fire will go to the prophets of the Baal. This will be the ultimate test. Those who keep the faith, those who throw in the towel. It seems like evil lies are ascendant and triumphant, and they get away with murder. And everything is anti-God and anti-family and anti-Jewish and anti-morality and anti-truth and is ascending and the, the, the deception and the lies and the amorality and the, it, it's, just, it's just, you know, so some people just go with the flow and go with the program. I mean, I can't fight City Hall. I mean, just go with the program, enjoy life, live for the moment, and who cares? Just live a nice, surrender to a totally nihilistic, living in the moment lifestyle versus those who are tested and those who will be, as the verse says in, in Daniel, they will be refined, they will be bleached, they will be chastened. There will be a tremendous clarification. Those who are good will withstand the test and not fall for this cheap, cheapest propaganda and superficiality and, and they'll stand up for the truth. There's a lot of Jews going to be in trouble. And they'll stick to the truth. So he says, this is the test. But those who study the Zohar, those who study the tree or connected to the tree of Allah, to the, to the Zohar, they don't need this test. They won't need this test because they are connected. That's, that's what, he's quoting the Zohar. This is all a quote. Before he gets to any explanations right now, he's simply quoting the Zohar. Because eventually, the Jewish people will taste of the tree of life, which is this book of the Zohar. They will go out of exile with it in mercy. So he says clearly that the Jewish people, this is written in the Zohar, the Jewish people will leave the exile through the Zohar, through the study of the mystical parts of the Torah. Studying the Talmud alone ain't going to do it. Studying the revealed part of the Torah alone is not going to do it. It's by studying the Zohar she calls the tree of life and the secrets, the mystical, the esoteric, and the soul of the Torah. For them shall be fulfilled the verse. God alone will lead them, and there is no strange God with him. And every seeking after redemption, they will not have to resort to the favors of the Gentile nations whose patron angels are known as strange gods. Rather, God himself will lead them out of exile and redeemer. They won't need the help of the ministers of the nations or the angels. A Jew will go directly to God. God is alone, and the Jew goes straight to God, is connected directly to Hashem, and Hashem himself will take us out of the exile. Because we're connected to Hashem through the esoteric part of the Torah. So we will be alone. And we don't need any other gods. Not only we don't need any other gods, we don't need even the, the angels of the nations. In other words, there will be a miraculous redemption won't just be a natural redemption. Natural redemption has to work through nature, you have to work, you need the permission of the UN, you need the permission of the government, you know, of the minister, ministering angels. This will be a redemption that comes directly from Hashem. We don't have to reckon with anyone, we don't have to ask anyone permission. Hashem Himself will lead us out of exile and bring us to Mashiach because we will be connected through, this, through the Zohar, we'll be connected directly with Hashem Himself. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, prohibition and permission, and purity and purity will no longer dominate Israel. For their sustenance will derive only from the side of the tree of life, 
where there is no problematic query which emanates from the side of evil and no controversy which emanates from the spirit of impurity. And it is written, and the spirit of impurity I shall remove from the earth. Thus, the Torah scholars will not be sustained by illiterate people, but from the side of the good who eat that which is pure, kosher, and permitted. Nor will they be sustained by the mixed multitude who eat that which is impure, ritually unfit, and prohibited. We still have the uh, multitudes. Yeah. Never left us from the, from the exodus from Egypt. From then, we always have this multitude that have attached themselves to the Jewish people, and we've suffered ever since. While the tree of good and evil dominates the world, these sages who are likened to the Sabbaths and festivals have nothing except what is given to them by those who are called unsanctified ones. Just like the Sabbath day, which only has what has been prepared for it on a weekday. So even today, the Torah scholars are apart and above, and just like Shabbat transcends the whole week, so they are the Torah scholars who are immersed in Torah are called the Shabbos. They're immersed in holiness 24-7. But nevertheless, just like the Shabbos depends on the whole week in order to, to eat in Shabbos, yeah, yeah, you need yeah, the whole yeah. week, so too they depend on the weekday, they depend on the multitude of, of nations, so to speak, uh, for their own sustenance. So it's not pure. They're not receiving a pure sustenance. Versus when Mashiach will come, however... When the tree of life will dominate the tree of good and evil will be suppressed. And the literal people will only have what the Torah scholars give them. They will be subjugated to them as if they did not exist in the world. Accordingly, the prohibited and the permitted, the impure and the pure, will not be removed from the illiterate people. As regards them, there will be no difference between the era of exile and the days of Mashiach, except for the Jewish people's relief from servitude to the nations. For they will not have tasted the tree of life and will require the Mishnah which set out the laws of prohibition and permission and purity and purity. Here ends the quotation from the Raya Mechema. When we say that there's no difference between uh, today and the days of Mashiach, except Shibud Malchir's Borvah, there won't be any anti-Semitism, there won't be any subjugation. So the Zohar says this is only referring to the multitude of nations within the Jewish people who are in a very low level. So for them, there won't be any difference between today and when Mashiach comes. There'll be an external shift, an external difference. There won't be, there'll be peace, there won't be any, any anti-Semitism. But for those who are attached to the tree of life, those who are connected to the Zohar, to the esoteric, the mystical, the soul of the Torah, to them, they will be on a whole different level. You can't compare the era of Mashiach to the level of, of life today. They will receive their sustenance directly. Everything will be godly. It will be on a whole different level. Okay, this is the quote, unquote, of the Zohar. Now, the Alter Rebbe. Now, at first glance, what the words of this passage imply to those who lack understanding is that the study of the laws of ritual prohibition and permission and the order of the Taharot which the laws of purity and impurity are found relates only to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now it is most surprising in itself that a particular area within the Torah should be designated as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thus relating it to the Klippa Noga, which is an admixture of good and evil. So even if we have no source to refute it, it just on its own right, it doesn't make any sense. How could you refer to any part of the Torah 
as if it's knowledge of good and evil, it's a mixture of good and evil. This is the Torah. This is the divine wisdom. Especially since it's clear we have uh, sources that obviously refute that. Moreover, this contradicts the plain meaning of Scripture and the teachings of our sages of blessed memory that the entire Torah that has been revealed to us and to our children in the dimension of Nigra is called a tree of life to those who hold fast to it and not only the book of the Zohar. Every part of the Torah is a tree of life to all those who hold on to it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't only refer to the secrets of the Torah, Kabbalah, Hasidus, every part in the Torah, from the Chumash to the Mishnayas to the Gemara, it's Torah, it's holy, it's divine. So how could you say that it's a mixture of good and evil, a tree of knowledge? God forbid. This is especially so since the Zohar was still concealed in their days. Indeed, the whole wisdom of the Kabbalah was hidden in their days and concealed from all the Torah scholars, except for a select few. The Zohar was just discovered in the, I think it was in the 14th century. It was hidden for close yeah. to a thousand years. So no one even knew of the Zohar. The Zohar was completely secret. And um, so most of the rabbis... In the day, in the times of Hashem Vayichai, most of the rabbis in the times of the Talmud did not study the secrets of the Torah. The entire occupation was the studying of the revealed part of the Torah. So, so within the Jewish people, there was a handful, almost like a secret society. You know, we know from, and this went on for, 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 for throughout, throughout Jewish history, till the Baal Shem Tov. If you read the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe's memoirs, there was a secret society that was so secret, no one even knew it existed. But until the previous Rebbe revealed and recorded the history of the secret society, we never even knew of its existence. We never even knew of its, the leaders of this whole movement was completely hidden, out of sight. It was like a secret Jewish society of great Kabbalists, of great Torah giants and geniuses who knew the whole Talmud backwards and forwards, who would pretend to be simple people would go around throughout the community and try to help the Jewish people in a very quiet way. And they would pretend to be simple. It was all an act. And meanwhile, they were the greatest, holiest, deepest, most brilliant men in Eastern Europe, pretending to be nobodies and just going around and, and do, doing their thing. No one even knew this existed. So the whole transmission of the Kabbalah was transmitted secretly and quietly and clandestinely. So the engagement of all the rabbis of the Talmud, the overwhelming majority was exclusively in the revealed part of the Torah, as recorded in the Talmud and the Mishnah. There were a handful that had a connection to the secrets of the Torah, but only a handful. And even they, they were secretive about it. No one even knew about it. It was like very clandestine, very underground, secret society. And even then it was studied in a concealed manner and not publicly, as is stated in the Mark. You're not allowed to teach. You can only teach one student, and only you have to, you have to be careful. Um, you can only give him hints, and you have to be careful how you transmit it. No one has to know about it. So the whole thing was very, very, very secluded and very quiet and under, under the radar. 
Thus, Rabbi Yitzhak uh, Luria of blessed memory wrote that it is only in these latter generations that it is permitted and obligatory to reveal this wisdom. That is the, Ka the Kabbalah, which illuminates the esoteric dimension of the Torah, but not in the earlier generations. So beginning in the 16th century, beginning of the Arizal, from that point on, something changed. Arizal says from now, at this point, it's a mitzvah to study the Kabbalah. And, and that's when these uh, movements started to try to spread the learning and studying of the Kabbalah amongst the Torah scholars, amongst the yeshivot at that time. Um, so there was a campaign trying to publicize and turn on the Torah scholars and the Talmudic scholars to turn them on to the secrets of the Torah, to the studying of the Kabbalah. So this became like an effort, a campaign. But up until that point, till the 16th century, it was actually forbidden to study. There were many, many restrictions placed on the studying of Kabbalah. You had to be married, and you had to be 40, and you had to know the whole Talmud of the heart, and you had to, you had to be stable, and so many conditions that uh, it, would <laughs> it would exclude 99.9% of us. Um, and it was indeed forbidden to study the Kabbalah, because it was very considered. Kabbalah was part of the Torah. It's not, like it's, it's not like the Torah prohibits us from stealing, so the Torah says you're not allowed to study Kabbalah. God forbid, it's Torah. It's the secrets of the Torah. It's the juiciest part of the Torah. It's the crown jewels of the Torah. It, it's not a prohibition that it's immoral to study. It's a prohibition because it was, it was dangerous. Because if you don't understand it properly, it's very, very, very dangerous. You know, you're dealing with very powerful forces. You're dealing with, this, with the soul and with faith. And if you take it in a very coarse way, in a very simplistic and in a very coarse physical way that the Kabbalah speaks metaphorically and it speaks about very abstract ideas and very profound ideas. It's discussing spirituality, godliness. We can't even grasp spirituality. We've never seen it. So you're talking about something that's hard to wrap, wrap your mind around. So if you get that wrong, it can mess you up in a very, ter a very terrible way. You know, it's like anyone could open up a, sh a shingle and claim that they're, uh, that they're an alternative healer. You know, you, you read some books, and you dabble around, and you start throwing around some, some ideas. Some of them are outright charlatans. 90% of them are well-intentioned, well but they simply don't know what they're talking about. And I'm sure they can do a lot of damage. Because you, you, you talk, you, you're, access, you're accessing and you're dealing with a very powerful part within healing, within the body. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not really a master, you can really, you can harm, you do a lot of harm. So, so it was a fear. The, the, the reason why the Kabbalah was transmitted in a very hidden way, as it says in the Torah, when Adam was expelled in the Garden of Eden, God placed guards with a sword, guardians with a sword that you're not allowed to back in because if you're not, if you're not worthy and you're not ready, and you'll come back to the, to the Garden of Eden, if you're going to come back to the Tree of Life, it can damage you, it can harm you. It's dangerous. You're dealing with powerful forces. If you don't know what to do with it, and you don't know how to handle it, you can either flip out. As the Talmud says, the four great rabbis entered into paradise, one flipped out, one died, and uh, one became a heretic. 
And only one of the four, Rabbi Akiva, was the only one who entered in peace and left in peace. So it's because of this danger, if the rabbis couldn't handle it, then Zayma, Ben Azai, if they couldn't handle it, and Elisha Ben Avuya, we can handle it. So therefore, they made a prohibition. They said, you're not allowed to study the Kabbalah. That's very strict, strict conditions. The Talmud says only to one student who is worthy, and you only have to give him hints, and you only have to give him the headlines. And because he ha- we have to prove that he's worthy of understanding and of absorbing and receiving it in a proper way. That great Arizal said about his students, he said, the only one who understood me is one student, Rabbi Chaim Vital. He's the only one who truly got me. He says, no one else should really say anything, should, don't read anything they say because they, 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 don't, they did not truly understand me. So of all his great students, he said, only one truly, truly understood me and understood what I was teaching. And he's the only one who has the authority to teach the Kabbalah of Darizal. Everything we have from Darizal is from Rav Chaim Vital. We have some, some things from the other students, but the authoritative uh, teachings of Darizal come from Rav Chaim Vital. This was even from Darizal, that he testified that none of his students really understood him. So therefore you can understand why he had all these restrictions. You have to be worthy. You have to be refined. You have to be saintly. You have to be godly. You have to be, you have to be ready to absorb, to receive... Otherwise, it can, it can damage you. It can do harm. That's why you have all these restrictions. It's not, it's not the restriction like thou shalt not steal. It's immoral to study Kabbalah. God forbid, it's Torah, it's holy. How could it be immoral to study any part of the Torah when the Torah belongs to every one of us? But it was very dangerous. It's like playing with fire. You're playing with, with like nuclear energy and you don't know what you're doing. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to backfire. That's why you had all the restrictions. But as time went on, the restrictions were lifted. Why? What changed? If anything, we became less refined. If anything, we became coarser and crasser. And why our ancestors could not study and we could study? And the answer is, the obvious answer, the simplest answer is because we have no choice. We're sick. We're so kamatas. We're like in a faint. If we, don't, if we don't give, when a person is sick, he doesn't respond to healthy, normal food. Our ancestors could study the Talmud, and they studied any part of the Torah, and they were on fire. They were inspired. They felt godly. It strengthened them. It helped them overcome their inner conflicts against their urges and instincts and impulse control and to lead a wholesome, good life. When Hashem saw that the world is becoming so dark and so coarse and so disconnected and so far away from truth that we're not like a sick person doesn't respond to healthy food. He loses his appetite. So what do you do with a sick person? You give him strong medicine. And the sicker he is, the stronger the medicine. You don't feed a healthy person medicine. No one sits down to a meal of medicine. Hmm. But if a person is sick, he needs a strong zetz. He needs a strong dose to wake him up to reawaken the body. So therefore, with all the dangers, it would be even more dangerous if we didn't study the Kabbalah today. Because the, we need it desperately. If anything is going to reach our soul, anything is going to inspire us, anything is going to connect us, if Judaism is just cut and dry and mechanical and technical and by rote, 
the world, the temptations of the world, and the world is just too overwhelming. The darkness is just too overwhelming. So you need a Zohar, you need a brilliant light. That's why Hashem revealed the Zohar, because we needed it. We need that brilliant light to awaken that spark, to keep the faith and awaken, inspire us, and to keep us connected, to keep us on fire, to fire us up. So we have no choice. Just like the Mishnah. The Mishnah was not meant to ever be written down. The Mishnah is the oral Torah. It was meant to be oral. But as it says in the end of the first tractate, in Barachot, the Mishnah says, Rebbe explained his decision to write the Mishnah because there's no choice. There comes a time when he saw the Jewish people are going to be dispersed and separated and fragmented. If we don't write down the Mishnah, Judaism is going to be lost. So we have no choice. And Hashem allowed us, in case of emergency, you have to take emergency measures. So too, this is emergency. In case of emergency, we must reveal the Kabbalah. We don't have a choice. It's not an option anymore. Anyone who doesn't study the Kabbalah is soulless. just doesn't have what it takes to really connect with Hashem in a very deep, mature, real way. We have no choice. That's the simplest explanation, the obvious explanation. And much deeper explanations um, because, especially to explain the Chabad approach, because <coughs> this, would, this would explanation would explain why the Kabbalah was revealed, but it doesn't explain the Chabad approach. The Chabad approach, Alter Rebbe's approach was not just to publicize the Kabbalah, but to publicize Hasidus to learn and to teach it in a very expansive way versus the other Hasidic groups which transmitted the teachings of Hasidus in drops like a, a medicine, a story, an anecdote, a deep, profound insight, short, sweet, intense, powerful, memorable, like an ejection to the soul. But that would explain it if it's all about medicine because no one sits down to a meal of medicine. The Alter Rebbe prepared a feast for us. This is not medicine. He's giving us a feast. At great length, explaining. And Alter Rebbe was just the drop in comparison to the, to the Mittler Rebbe. And, uh, and until the Rebbe, Hasidus was expanded with each passing generation. It becomes more expansive. And we spend three hours a day in Yeshiva studying Hasidus. So this, if this is just about medicine, why are we sitting down to a three-course dinner? A buffet <laughs> with a schmuggers board and a uh, and a Viennese table <laughs> of chassidus. <laughs> if it's a medicine, you should take a pill, take a drop, and that's it. Okay. Even in America, where everyone is over-medicated, fine. You don't you don't have a four-course dinner, a three-course dinner of medicine. And here, Chabad, the rabbi is prepared for us a schmuggers, a, a whole banquet of chassidus. So obviously, there has to be a much deeper reason. And the reason why today um, every Jew, Tanya was not meant for a certain group of Jews. Alter Rebbe wrote to Tanya, he said he meant it for every single Jew. Because, as he's going to explain later, on this, based on the Zohar, Mashiach will come. As Maimonides says, what will be the main occupation of the world Jew as well as non-Jew? The exclusive occupation of the world will be the pursuit of knowledge and the ultimate knowledge. What's the ultimate knowledge? Knowledge of Hashem. 
the information age and the ultimate information, a knowledge and awareness of Hashem. This will be the exclusive pursuit of all seven billion people. So therefore, as we get closer to Mashiach, we're getting a taste. That's how we prepare for Mashiach. When you're going to the wedding, the bride has to dress up in, in the finest jewelry, to be bedecked in the most beautiful dress in the finest jewelry. These are the crown jewels. The Hasidus, these are the crown jewels of the Torah. So as we're getting ready for Mashiach, the wedding of the Jewish people in Hashem, which never happened. Mount Sinai was the betrothal, but God never ever went to the chuppah yet until Mashiach comes. He never really consummated his marriage 3,328 years later, till this moment Hashem has never consummated his marriage for some inexplicable reason that we will never understand what's taking him so long. He's standing us up for so long, for 3,328 years. But we're getting ready. We're preparing. Ever since the Baal Shem Tev, and ever since the Alter Rebbe, and starting with the Arizal, and Abishim and Bayechoi, we're getting ready. We're bedecking ourselves in the finest jewelry. So, it's, so it is a banquet. We're not just studying because it's a medicine, because we're so sick and we're critically ill, and we need this strong injection. That's, that's a negative reason. To counteract the darkness, you need a torch. You need an intense light to counteract all that darkness. But this is a much more positive reason. The reason we're doing this, and with each passing day and each passing week and month and year and generation, we're getting closer to Mashiach until we're imminently, and we're a moment, a second away. Today we have a full-fledged banquet, Shmuggers board and Viennese table and three-course dinner of Hasidic teachings of because we have to be bedecked in all our finest jewelry. We're ready, we have to get ready for this wedding. But up until the point of the Arizal, this was taboo. You were not allowed to study. And that's why the Kabbalah was written in a very secretive language. Unless you were really on a high level, you really didn't understand what they were talking about. So much so that the secular Jewish historians 19th century and even some rabbis they had no appreciation of the Kabbalah they were embarrassed by the Kabbalah it sounded like a bunch of mumbo jumbo I, mean, I didn't want to repeat the words in the language they used to describe the Kabbalah they were embarrassed by the Kabbalah this was the height of the enlightenment you know the intellect and he had all these language obscurity and talking about things that seemed so unscientific and not rational and you should see the respect with which the modern scientists, the modern physicists who are working at the cutting edge of science talk about the Kabbalah and talk about the Zohar. Everything from relativity to quantum mechanics, everything, all these breakthroughs, it's all written in the Zohar, it's all there. Now they look in wonder and in awe. How did the Jews know this thousands of years ago? What we're discovering in the laboratory was all written down. It was all, not only the Jews discovered it, they experienced it. Darizal experienced it. He wasn't just talking about something. He, he saw it, he envisioned it, he experienced it. The Rabbi and they wrote it all down. But it was written in the esoteric language that if, unless you were really worthy, it was a closed book. You just, it didn't make any sense. You, you had no way to proceed. And it was meant to be that way. Just like the Agadah. As the Rebbe said earlier, we learned that most of the uh, secrets of the Torah, as the Talmud says, is in the Agadah. Agadah, the story 
the story part of the Talmud, which is also written very cryptically, and sometimes it appears to be almost like, you know, can, I, can you take this seriously? There's like exaggerations and hyperbole, but it's the secrets of the Torah that were transmitted in a very secretive way. And unless you really were an adept at Kabbalah, you would, it would be a closed book to you. So it was intentionally written that way. Because it contained the deepest secrets and it was meant to keep out any outsider. It wasn't ready, it wasn't worthy. But that was up until the Arizal. Starting with the Arizal, then it became a mitzvah to publicize and to start teaching Kabbalah. But even then, it was only for the Torah scholars. Starting with the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, the master, the true master, he revealed and publicized the deepest secrets of the Torah to everyone, to the masses, to the simplest Jew. And, and Alter Rebbe wrote to Tanya explaining and articulating the essence of the Torah, the essence of Hasidus, that should be accessible to each and every, every one of us. But up until that point, up until the Arizal, for the majority of Jewish history, it was a closed book. So most rabbis only studied the revealed part of the Torah. They had no clue. They had no access to the deeper mysteries of the Torah. It was not available. It was not accessible. No one told them where the club was a secretive club. And uh, they chose who would join the club. They knew who amongst the Jewish people had holy souls or ready but to everyone else, they didn't even know it existed. They didn't even know the Zohar was hidden. They didn't even know it existed. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, too, stated in the sacred Zohar that permission to reveal the secrets of the Kabbalah was only granted to himself and his associates. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai himself said that it's off limits. It was very difficult to enter into this club. He says, it's not for you. Most of the rabbis says, it's not for you. Now, this, now too. this too is a remarkable wonder, for if so, i.e. according to a superficial reading of the above, quotation from Raya and Emma, from which it would appear that only the Zohar is called the tree of life, while the revealed plane of the Torah is considered the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He finished this question. Now he's going to add another, he's going to add to the question. The question is, if you read it very superficially, that only the secrets of the Torah is called the tree of knowledge, versus the Mishnah the revealed part of the Torah discusses guilty, not guilty, permitted, not, uh, not, not permissible, kosher, not kosher, pure, impure, all of that comes from the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil. Why is it that 99% of the rabbis spend their whole life studying the tree of knowledge and not the tree of life, which was, they had no access to? How could that be possible? It's question number one. Question number two, that this is a remarkable wonder. The study. the study of the laws of ritual prohibition and permission, and surely the study of civil laws, such as litigation on monetary matters, should not override the obligation of prayer, which is set out according to the secrets of the Zohar, and on the supernal unions of the various divine names and supernal spirits, for those who are familiar with them. He says especially singles out the laws of financial matters. Because the laws of financial matters uh, are the most prosaic. The Torah says you have to follow the law of the land. You really have to understand 
financial matters, you really have to understand the people and the economy. If you understand the economy, you really understand society, because that is the main occupation of most adults. And the majority of our life is our careers, or finance, or money. That's what makes society go around. Always follow the money. So to learn the laws of finance means to really get into the nitty-gritty and understand society and understand reality, practical reality, understand how society works, what makes society tick. Just always follow the money. That's behind everything. So if you understand the money, you understand how society works. You're really, you're really into the, the most prosaic, the most down-to-earth, practical. And this is what occupied them and engaged them. And this takes precedence over prayer. If anything, prayer Prayer, which is based, the Nusach that we have is based on the deepest secrets of the Kabbalah and the deepest secrets of the Zohar and, and the unifications of Hashem. So prayer, which comes from the tree of life, which is attached, connected to the inner esoteric part of the Torah, that comes from the tree of life. So if I have an option of pursuing the tree of life or the tree of knowledge, which one comes first? Tree of life. And yet, what takes precedence? The study of law, civil law, monetary law, financial law, takes precedence over prayer. So, such as uh, Rav Shimon and his associates. But this is not the case. In fact, the study of the laws of what is virtually prohibited or permitted, and even the study of civil law does, does override the obligation to pray at fixed times. As stated in the Gemara, Rav Shimon and his associates, and likewise, any others whose Torah study is their sole occupation do not interrupt their Torah study for prayer. This applies even when one is occupied with the study of civil law. Like Rabbi Yehuda, all of those studies were in the order of that he can literally damages. Nevertheless, in order not to interrupt his studies, he prayed only every 30 days when reviewing his studies as stated in the Gemara. So he's saying, okay, if you're talking about a rabbi who doesn't understand, like he said earlier, most rabbis had no access to the tree of life, had no access to the Zohar and the esoteric teachings. Okay, then you understand. There's no point in pushing off, there's no point in pushing off the study of civil law and financial law because prayer to him was just simple prayer, thanking Hashem for your needs. He didn't understand the deeper mystical parts of prayer. But we're talking about Hashem and Bayechai. The author of the Zohar, you can imagine his prayer. His prayer was a unification of the worlds and the upper worlds and the upper realms and the divine svirot. It was every word and every letter was based on Kabbalah. And yet, Rabbi Shimon himself would, would push off prayer and instead would spend his time studying. Rabbi Yehuda, with his whole occupation, was studying the laws of Nezikin, the laws of damages, financial laws. And he would only pray once in 30 days because once in 30 days he would review to someone who already knows the whole Torah doesn't have to learn it every day because he knows it already he knows it all by heart but once in 30 days he would make a he would one day would be dedicated for reviewing everything so he should have all the facts fresh in his mind and the, uh, the rest of the time was spent delving deeply and going deeper and understanding the reasoning behind it and and making connections and uh, new insights. but So only during that once in 30 days, that day that would spend anyway reviewing everything that he knows already. So that day he would daven. 
that did not push off davening. But the 29 days that he, that he uh, delved deeply into, into, the, into the laws of damages and civil law, he didn't know. Even though he was a great mystic, and his davening would have shaken up the whole universe, and yet, I'm sorry, I'm busy learning the laws, financial law, and learning the Talmud, and learning civil law, and financial law. So it makes no sense. This is the tree of life, and this is the tree of knowledge. The Rebbe asked, people asked, according to this, how, what, uh, if they did not daven, then how did they affect all the things that need to be affected through davening? There are certain things that are done through davening, when the person davens properly and the right person davens, you affect the whole universe. So if they didn't daven, what happened? Who kept the universe straight? Who, who, how was it all accomplished? So the Rebbe says that because they were so holy and because they were so egoless and so refined, they accomplished what, what others accomplished through davening, they accomplished through, through their learning. That's right, that's right, that's right. You know, it's one thing a person is studying, a person is praying, and he cries, he's praying. So his soul is on fire, and he starts crying to Hashem. But a person is studying a piece of Talmud, and he starts crying. He's studying a piece of law. Dry, technical law. Brilliant law. Why, why, why suddenly his soul is so inspired? Because they sensed the divinity. They felt that this is Hashem's words. This is holy. This is not just dry mechanical law. It's not just brilliant logic. This is godly. And their soul would just melt. So you're talking about such high souls, such elevated souls, that, that the Torah that they learned had the same effect on them that prayer has on others. For others to feel refined and to feel inspired and feel elevated, they need prayer. But a person who's truly connected with his soul, a very deep soul, he studies Torah, he's so inspired that it has the same effect on him. And, and therefore his studying of Torah has the same effect that prayer would have on the upper realms and the upper worlds, accomplishing all the unifications and whatever needs to be done. I never met a lawyer like that. <laughs> <laughs> they make the clients cry. <laughs> also, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, in the first chapter of Rechot, Rabbi Yochai is of the opinion that even the reading of Shema, one interrupts only the study of Scripture, but not of Mishnah, the study of which is superior to the study of Scripture, according to Yochai. He's saying that even Shema, you don't interrupt. You don't interrupt. If you're in the middle of learning, you don't even stop to read the Shema, unless you're learning the Bible, you're learning the five books of Moshe, you're learning the verse. Yeah, yeah. Then you're learning the verse, so then you stop for Shema. Because the verse, some say that the verse is um, that the Kabbalah is considered part of the Mikra, it's part of the, like, um, the Bible, part of the written word. 
So you stop, you interrupt from reading the Chumash, you interrupt from reading the Torah, which anyway is very mystical. God spoke to Moshe. The whole thing is very mystical. No one understands the Chumash. It's all mystical and divine and godly, and every letter is holy and precise. So if if you're reading the verse, you're in the middle of reading the Chumash, so stop and read the Shema. But not the Mishnah. If you're busy reading the Mishnah, you don't have to stop and read the Shema. What's the Mishnah? The Mishnah is laws to don't, obligated, not obligated, guilty, not guilty, pure, impure. And that you don't interrupt. It's interesting at the, in the, uh, the Tanya, wherever the Alter Rebbe quotes the Zohar, right in the beginning of the Tanya, the first part of the Tanya, whenever he quotes the Zohar, he says, as it's written, just like the same language he uses when you quote a verse in the Torah. It's not a Maimer Chazal. It's not the rabbi said. It's written. Like it's written. Because the Alter Rebbe follows the opinion in the Tanya and also in the Kutatayra that the Kabbalah is part of the Torah. Because the Torah is very mystical. However, in the Alter Rebbe's Code of Jewish Law, the Alter Rebbe takes a different approach. He says that, that the Kabbalah is part of the Oral Torah, not the Scripture. But that was one of the first things the Alter Rebbe wrote, the Tanya he wrote later. And uh, the Tanya he seems to be, and the Kutitayr, seems to be taking the other opinion um, that the Kabbalah is part of the Scripture. And that's what he says here that scripture you push off for reading of the Shema because it's all Kabbalah so if I'm anyway studying scripture which is Kabbalah it's okay so I can read the Shema but when you're studying Mishnah you're studying law you don't even have to stop to read the Shema continuing to learn the law so if you're going to tell me that uh, if the Zohar writes that uh, the esoteric Kabbalah is the tree of life and law, especially prosaic law, is the tree of knowledge. So I'm pushing off the tree of life because I'm busy with the tree of knowledge. It makes no sense. Uh, he did not differentiate between studying orders of Zaraim, Moed, and Kodashim and studying the orders of Tadot and Zitzikim. He thus holds even when studying the monetary laws in the order of Zitzikim, one should not interrupt one's studies for the reading of Shema. Interesting. Yeah, there are six I'm orders of the Mishnah. He, omit, he omits one order. Zerayim, first order, yeah. agriculture, Mayad, times, holidays, Shabbat. Uh, he misses Nashim, he skips out Nashim, skips out uh, women, marriage, relationships. And then he mentions Kachim, the laws of sacrifices, Taras, the laws of purity and impurity, and the Zikin, the laws of uh, law, monetary law. But he omits, he omits Nashim. Why? Very strange. Why would he? He mentions five out of the six. Why does he omit Nashim? So he says, the Rebbe's father says that, that Nashim is not a proof. The fact that Nashim takes precedence over reading the Shema is not, it doesn't prove anything. Because we find that even Hashem himself said, erase my name in order to keep the marital, the shalom bias, in order to keep the marital relationship between husband and wife, 
when a woman is suspected of being an adulteress, a woman as Saita, so how do you prove her innocence? Hashem says, take my name, erase my name. You're not allowed to erase God's name. God says, I'm sacrificing myself, erase my name, in order to keep the peace at home, to prove her innocence, to restore her back to her husband. So we see that the women marriage relationship is so central in Jewish life that it takes precedence even over the esoteric. So the fact that it says it, don't push off, I mean, the fact that he says that push off the Shema, don't read the Shema because I'm busy studying Nashim, because that takes precedent. It's so critical. I have to get the husband and wife back together. So understanding that tractate, that whole order, is more important than even reading the Shema. That would make sense to me. But to say that the other orders, especially the order of Nezikin that deals with prosaic law, monetary law, financial law, financial disputes, that takes precedence over the Shema. The tree of knowledge over the tree of life. Why? It makes no sense. Real deep David, okay? And you have certain thoughts that come into you that distract you from the Davin. You push them away. Okay. I am learning that when these interruptions come about, if they're not really evil, in my estimation, then it is to use that that revelation to enhance your own knowing of the prayer. Right. Here we're talking about a rabbi who went 30 days. Yes. 30 days without praying. Only once in 30 days. But the, but the essence of what he's thinking... What's it, what's, and what's he thinking for 18 hours? He's thinking he's learning the laws of damages, not damages, this argument, this liar says this. How do I decide who's the liar who's telling the truth? getting into the nitty-gritty of the, of the marketplace and finance yes. and money yes. and people with all their... All their and, and this is all he's engaged in, 18 hours a day, full-time, non-stop. But this is, this is more... This takes precedence over mystical connection, spirituality, prayer, and um, according to Abishim Baichoy, you wouldn't even stop for the Shema. That you wouldn't even stop the with the Shema. That is the mystical connection. That's the question. That is the mystical okay, connection. Okay, that's the question that he's asking. If you read the Zohar the, that you quoted earlier in the beginning of the chapter, he seems to be saying, if you read it very superficially, that the revealed Torah, which deals with all these, with, with human nature and, and the human world, is a very, is like a, a tree of knowledge. It's good and evil mixed together. Versus the Zohar the mystical, esoteric. This is pure. This is like mother's milk. This is the tree of life. Those who are connected to the tree of life, those who study the tree of life, the Rebbe says it doesn't make any sense. Because if that's the case, how do you... Not only more time, overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of the time. So what you're saying is... He's going to answer it, but this is the question, yeah. Studying the Gomorrah is more holy than studying uh, the Kabbalah. In other words, you're saying that uh, learning about uh, Nazikin is you know, well, well, that's well. This, 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 on, this only, this only, this only applies. This only applies in those days. Only those days when he says that they only would study, pray once in thirty days, or push off the Shema. This only applies to people on the level of the rabbis, Abshim Bayechoi. You know, we interrupt anyway, because we interrupt to read the newspapers. 
and we have time for the internet, and we have time for a movie once in a while, and we have time for this and for that. All of a sudden, we have no time to, to pray because we're busy learning. No, 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 that doesn't work that way. These people didn't have time to eat, to sleep. They, they studied, you know, nonstop. This was their occupation. They didn't interrupt for a split second, for no distractions. If you're on that level, today there's no one on that level. No one even to lose himself is on that level. So halachically, this doesn't apply today. But it does seem, but even for them, when they had a choice to make the mystical connection, to be immersed in mysticism and spirituality and pray and, and lost in thought with Hashem, and instead their whole thought is occupied day and night and civil law, this argues this way and this one says this way and this one, I mean, it doesn't, why? If according to the Zohar, if you read the superficial reading of the Zohar, this is the question. He's building up the question. He's not coming to any... He's going to answer the question very satisfactorily, but he's building the question. If you take the Zohar superficially, it would seem to say that the, the revealed part of the Torah is from a tree of knowledge, and the secrets uh, part of the Torah, the mystical, is a tree of life. He says, that it doesn't make any sense. How can you say that? Of course, if that would be the case... Can't do that. Then, exactly. That's the question. Very good. You can't do that. Exactly. He builds up the question, and we, next week we're still going to, he has a whole list of here of questions, if you take the Zohar very superficially. This one. Right, obviously you can't do that. You can't separate the revealed part of the Torah from the esoteric part of the Torah. The problem is this distortion could only come if you split off the inner part of the Torah from the, from, the, from the external part of the Torah. That's, that's right. Then if you have a split, as if the mystical part of the Torah doesn't exist, and the spiritual doesn't exist, and the soul doesn't exist, and your whole Torah is legalism, and uh, technical, and mechanical, and dry, and, and, and logical, and that's all there is, and there's nothing, nothing else, then you can come to this erroneous reading an erroneous conclusion that this is what the Zohar is saying. There's a complete split between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. God forbid in the Torah there should be such a split. Obviously if you realize there is no split then you'll have a whole different reading and a whole different insight and a whole different understanding of what the Zohar is telling us. But if you have no connection to the Zohar and you're not illuminated, if you're in the darkness, and you just take everything at face value and read it superficially, this whole piece of Zohar makes absolutely no sense. As he's building the case, and to be continued next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.